I want to go ahead and invite um, Sam Brewster up. He's going to be reading for us out of the book of Revelation. We're going to be reading chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 7 and verses 12 through 17. Um, if you would, please stand with me out of respect for God's word as we read about Ephesus and Pergamum this morning. Sam, I'll go ahead and pass it off to you, brother. Amen. Amen. Revelation, Revelation 2, 1 to 7. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation two twelve to 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Church, hear the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Sam, thank you. So last week, if you're here, you know we didn't get to uh, the churches of Ephesus and Pergamum. So I promise you, uh, today we are going to get to the churches of Ephesus and Pergamum. And then in the next couple of weeks, we'll cover the other uh, churches that are here in Revelation 2 and 3. Um, so there's a lot here for us, but I, I want to go back a little bit to last week. And I, and I just want to say this real quick. I, I hope and I pray that as you were here last week, um, that your heart uh, kind of walked away feeling some of the same way that I, I did, which is simply this, and, and Brandon's already mentioned, I think Ryan has as well this morning, that, that simply as you look at yourself in the mirror and as you see your life, the prayer is, is that we walked away last week a little bit less at peace 
with sin that we knew about in our own lives than we were when we came into that space. That, that we came out going like, man, like, I, I want to war against the sin that I have in my life. Like, I want to I push against the sin that I know is already there. And listen, none of us are going to be perfect in that. And none of us are ever going to be say, seen as sinless. And yet, we should always be making war against the sin that we know of in our lives. And so I just want to encourage you, wherever you are this week, as you come back into this morning, however your week has been, maybe you've had a really good week where you've been warring against that sin. Maybe you've had a really hard week. Maybe it's been kind of an ebb and flow and you've been kind of up and down. Listen, I want to encourage you to remind you of this. And I know we already have this morning, but God's grace is sufficient for you. The calling for us as believers is not in the hope that in this day and age, and before we come to faith, or before we come to Jesus in the new heaven and the earth, that we're ever going to be perfect. The point is that we fight, and we abide in his love, and we rest in his grace. Amen? And so I just want to encourage you, wherever you are, listen, keep fighting. Just, just keep fighting. No matter how it's gone for you this week, don't give up that fight. Secondly, I want to remind you of this quote that I read last week out of Daryl Johnson's book, Discipleship on the Edge. It says this, it turns out that the seven churches of Asia embody every major issue with which the church has struggled in every age, in every cultural setting. Don't forget that what we're about to read and what we're about to see in the seven churches represented here in the first section of Revelation are are easily, potentially, us. Whether the same temptations that we also may face, that we might engage right now, and it doesn't even mean that you're necessarily just one of them, we may be all of them. And we need to be aware of this, and we need to be mindful of it, and we need to be asking the Lord to reveal these things to us. And that's why we started what we did last week, because we can't be asking the Lord to open our eyes to things that we don't see when we're not even dealing with the things that we do see. We aren't even dealing with the sins that we already know about. He's not going to reveal more to us because it's just more that we wouldn't engage. And so I hope that that's where you are this day. I hope that you want him to open up your eyes to that because there are some real issues in the churches of Ephesus and Pergamum that we might be tempted to engage in or be tempted to do in this day and age at Central Christian Church in 2023. So I want to pray for us that he would open our eyes and open our ears as we enter into this time. And I'm going to pray a little bit of a prayer that I actually quoted last week from a book, so you may find that familiar. But let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for this morning. Uh, It's been such a good morning already. We've been able to lift our voices to you. We've been able to um, just celebrate your grace and rest in your mercy and grace as we've come to uh, the table and be reminded of the work that you've done for us in your son. We've been able to just have fun and to laugh But Lord, now we come to your word. As we engage with these revelations, these these warnings and and affirmations that you've given to these churches, Lord, I want to pray that you would open our eyes. Father, I want to pray, Lord, that you would look at us, that you would look at me, that you would look at my family, that you would look at our church, Lord, that you would look into me, that you would look into my family, into um, my church, you, you would look through us, that you would see us holy. And Lord, I pray that in the next couple of moments that you would shine your purifying light into our lives. 
Lord, that you would shine your purifying. Now, you don't want us to be divided people. You want us to be pure people. And so, Lord, would you reveal to us, would you help us to see things that maybe we're not aware of or things that we're de- kind of delusional about in regards to our own faith? Would you shine your light and would you burn away anything and everything that keeps us from you? So, Lord, that's our prayer. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me. Um, Lord, I certainly need your help. Pray, Lord, for your spirit to be with us this morning. We just ask these things in your name. Amen. So, we're going to jump right in, and we're going to be looking at the churches of Ephesus and Pergamon, and we're going to start with some good things that these churches have. And that's an important place to start, right? It's an important place to start looking at the good, recognizing that these churches, even though there is some criticism that Jesus makes about them, like they're not all bad. And it's easy for us to kind of either say, well, you're all good or you're all bad. But we see right here in Revelation, there's some good things that both Ephesus and Pergamon were engaged in. And these were real churches, real people, real families, real challenges, real individuals who were coming out of um, idolatry and out of uh, paganism and out of just not knowing the Lord at all, coming into the church for the very first time. And they are in very difficult societies and very difficult places that would have been very much against them. Very much like I think our society is in our day and age. And I think it's important to see that they're not all bad. There's some really good things, some really commendable things that these churches are doing. Let's start with Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the foremost cities in that region. It's a major seaport. It was a massive population of people. We don't know exactly what the population was. We just know that it was one of the most populated cities in that day, in that age, in Mesopotamia, in that area. And so here you've got Ephesus, who is a hotbed of pagan idolatry because it is a seaport. So you've got all these different pagans bringing their idolatry and these guilds bringing their worship of other gods. We know there was a massive temple to uh, the goddess Artemis in Ephesus. We know that these things were a part of their day-to-day life. Like This was a very challenging place for the people of, of God to live. It was a center of pagan idolatry in that region. And as people would come out of this life, it seems that the church in Ephesus was doing a fantastic job making sure that they were engaging with sound doctrine, that they were continuing to do certain work, that they were toiling with patient endurance, that they had no patience with anybody that would teach something that went against the scriptures or against something that those that had taught them the gospel might say that that's not right. Like they were good at picking out false Christs and false gods. Like this was a massively important part of who they were. Like they were able to pick out false teachers as good as any of them. They were guarding the truth and they were guarding the truth well. Like that's a fantastic commendation, isn't it? Like if you were encouraged by the voice of Jesus that said, hey, good job, like you're not letting false teachers come in, like you guys are enduring and you're testing the faith well, like fantastic, like that's encouraging. And I would think that this comes from some of their foundation. If you know much about the church of Ephesus, they were founded by Aquila and Priscilla, which we hear about in other parts of the New Testament. Paul spent a ton of time there. Not just anybody, Paul Spent a ton of time there. Timothy spent a ton of time in Ephesus. John, the one that's writing this revelation, was likely an elder in this church. Like, that's some pretty good pedigree, right? Like, those, if that's your list of elders and pastors, like, that's a good group of people. 
And so these people, like they're good at picking out false doctrine. They're good at guarding the truth that they had been given. Now, before we jump into Pergamum, I I need to say two different things. And these are really important for us. The first one is this. A strength in one area, even a really good one, a really godly one, can at times create blind spots in us in other areas. Let me say that again. A strength in one area of our lives, in our faith, even a really good one, can at times bring about a blind spot in another area of our lives. Like we need to be aware of this. We need to be mindful of this because it's easy for us at times to be like, well, look how good I am at this and forget that that may be meaning you have a blind spot somewhere else. You've probably heard the analogy of the guy who goes to the gym and only does the bench press and the curls, and he does it all the time, right? And he gets huge up here, but he never does anything with his legs. He's just a skinny twig leg sticking out of like this giant mass, right? Like he's looking in the mirror and he's looking at himself from the waist up and he's like, oh, look how chiseled I am. I'm amazing. Not realizing that he's really weak in his legs. Like, we don't want to be that church. We don't want to be that guy who's like, oh, look how strong I am over here. Look how great I am at this. Like, I'm such a great reader of the Bible, and I go to church all the time, and I pray, but I neglect these things, or I'm weak in these things. God wants us to be all well-rounded, constantly trying to engage in becoming healthy, strong, thriving believers. And the people of Ephesus they couldn't and shouldn't see their doctrinal purity as a perfect reflection of their health any more than you and I can. Any more than you and I can. Their passion for the truth doesn't mean that there aren't some real areas of need in their spiritual lives. Because just because you're strong in one area doesn't mean you're not weak in another. And that leads us to this. When you realize that, when you realize, oh man, like I'm, I'm really strong in this area, don't neglect that area for the sake of the weak area. All right, go back to your guy. Like once you realize, oh, I need to do some things to my legs, you don't stop doing curls and bench press, you just need to throw some squats in there. All right, so same thing. Say you're somebody and you just feel like you're really, really strong in engaging the word of God and reading the word of God, but you struggle in your prayer life. You don't neglect the word of God and focus only on prayer, you just need to throw more prayer into your life. Say you're someone who's really passionate about evangelism and you love to reach the lost for Jesus. That's awesome, but you're a little bit weak in discipleship. You don't neglect the evangelism. You just add some discipleship. So we need to be mindful of this. Just because you see a weak area, we don't want to get um, down on ourselves and discouraged. We want to be grateful that God has done a work in us that's positive, but we want to be able to focus on that area of our life that is weak. So again, the people of Ephesus, they should not stop caring about the truth to focus on whatever weakness is about to be revealed to them. So the people of Ephesus, they were doing a really good job guarding the truth. For Pergamum, they were also a center for ungodly activity. Most of the cities were of those days. For them in particular, they were a center of of worship of the emperor and of the goddess Roma. 
It's likely that's why they're called and told that the, the throne of Satan is in Pergamum. Is because that was a hotbed for that type of worship. And so Pergamum seemed, based on archaeological evidence, to take pride in their worship of the emperor. And so that was a big deal to them. Now, we don't know exactly that's why. We also know that there is a, a temple uh, to the throne of Zeus in, in Pergamum. And so there seems to be some really big aspects of idolatry, worshiping the emperor and worshiping Zeus in Pergamum. And yet, what we see in the midst of this, as people are coming out of that worship and coming into the faith, that they are commended for holding fast to the name of Jesus. And we're given this example of a man named Antipas. And we don't know anything about Antipas. All we know is that Antipas is killed for his faith. It's likely that Antipas was unwilling to declare Caesar is Lord. That was kind of the refrain for the people of Pergamum. Like, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. We want everybody in the Roman Empire to know we're loyal to Rome. We're loyal to the emperor. We see him as God. And Antipas seems to be, have been unwilling to say that because he believed that Christ was Lord. And as a result, he was killed in the face of that. Neither he nor the church wavered. That's a good commendation. In fact, many in our day would say that, and that's the ultimate sign of dedication to Jesus, isn't it? Like being threatened and not turning on him? Like, are you willing to die for Jesus? Would you reject the name of Jesus if someone came and stuck a gun to your head and said, either die or reject Jesus, or, or, or be burned at the stake or thrown to the wild animals? If we'd said, no, like we would, we would gladly go to our death, we'd say, well, man, you can't get more dedicated and devoted than that, can you? Now, that's a good thing. And that seems to be where the people of Pergamum were. And yet, even in the midst of that, in the midst of all of that good, we see the Lord who knows these churches say something that's very challenging. In Revelation 2, 4a, he says to the church of Ephesus, I know you guard the truth, but I have this against you. To the people of Pergamum, he says, I know that you're holding fast to my name, but I have a few things against you. And that's, that's a scary thing. To have Jesus say that he has something against us. And what this reminds us is that just because something appears to be healthy, just because something appears to be strong in terms of the church, doesn't necessarily mean that it is. It doesn't necessarily mean that it is. There's an enemy. Remember, never forget that. That's a central point of this entire book. He is after us. He is seeking to make the church, to kill the church, to seduce the church, to deceive the church, to lull the church into sleep. And for these churches to overcome and to conquer, they have to be aware of the efforts of the enemy. And it seems like some things have creeped into these churches. Here's what's important for us to see. Jesus' criticism is not of anger. This is not, well, I have this against you. I mean, I'm coming after you. I mean, he, he warns them that way. But this is a criticism out of love. His desire is to see them wake up to step out of these danger, to ensure they don't fall into these temptations so that he can see his people, the ones he died for, overcome and become conquerors. And so he says, like, if you have ears, hear and repent so that you can be a conqueror, so that you can be overcomer. So criticism 
I know in this day and age we don't like it, but criticism can be an act of love, can't it? That's what it is for these churches. And Jesus is even looking at us, and he might want to say to us, man, good job in this, good job in this, but this I have against you. And if that's the case, we want to be faithful to hear that. So what was it that he had against these churches? The first one, Ephesus, the thing that he had against the church of Ephesus was their abandonment of love. Now, some text, depending on what you read and what your version would be, says that they abandoned their first love. Others would say that, uh, that, that they just uh, no longer love in that sense. And so there's d- debate in commentators whether they've abandoned their love of Jesus, like their initial love of Jesus and their passion for Jesus, or they've abandoned their love for others. Here's what I would contend to you. It doesn't matter. They're the same thing. In many ways, they are the same thing. But here's a church, they're surrounded by false teaching, they are surrounded by pagan idolatry, they're surrounded by false gods trying to sneak their way into the church, they're surrounded by even false Christ coming into the church, and they're protecting against that danger, but in so doing, they have bought into the temptation of turning inward. I love how Dennis Johnson puts it in The Triumph of the Lamb. He says that an embattled church surrounded by enemies can turn inward in self-protection and suspicion. The church can easily be tempted to turn inward and miss the calling that they have to not only protect the truth, but to be faithful to the greatest commandment that Jesus gave. And it's in this command that we find both the love of God and the love of people. It's in Matthew chapter 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what I'm saying, regardless of whether or not the chief people in Ephesus had lost their love of God or lost their love of people is irrelevant, but you can't because you can't have one without the other. You cannot have one without the other. A love of God will breed itself out or will bring itself out and bear fruit in our lives in loving other people. And you don't have the ability in you to love people unless you are underneath abiding in and, lo- and, and walking in the love of Christ. So the love of sound deep teaching, while deeply important, is not a replacement for either the love of God or the love of people. Look at these texts, 1 John 4, 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And I have, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So anything that the church excels in without love is going to end up meaning we have nothing. And I think the church can easily forget this. Even something as good as doctrinal purity, we have to be mindful in our effort to protect the truth, to also not stop caring for the sick 
and the hurting and the broken and those who don't know Christ. In fact, we're to open our arms to those people, invite them into our homes, to love them and to care for them. Not unwisely, of course, but as Christ would have us. If we are so desperate to point out to the atheist that his wrong belief, and yet we forget that he's a soul in darkness, enslaved to sin, forget that he's a soul that God has died for, like we miss the point. If we simply only want to correct their belief, but not actually show compassion and love to those people, then we're missing the point of the gospel. This is what was happening to the people of Ephesus. They were so focused on their knowledge that they got and missed the call to love. Even to love those that they disagreed with. Like surely this would never happen to us, right? Like like surely this would never happen. Well, it's interesting that this week there's a really practical moment that we can kind of look to to see if the church is ever guilty of this. And it's one of those things that's happening in Asbury University in Kentucky. How many of you have read about that? The revival that's happening in Kentucky. And what's interesting, if you look at that revival and what's going on in Kentucky in this university, what happened was there was a chapel service that was supposed to end, but didn't. It just kept going. I think we're on like day nine or 10 or something of that nature. Right now, in this moment, they just have continued 24 hours to pray and to worship the Lord. And what you see in this is a spectrum of people making comment about this. You have on one end of the spectrum over here, people who are looking for heresy. And they're like, no, this isn't real. This isn't revival. Here's all the reason this is bad. And then you have people on this end of things that were like, well, it doesn't matter. It's super cool. If people are doing things with God, like that's great. Listen, you have to, you can do both. We can be discerning, we can care about truth, we can test the spirits and be loving and gentle and kind and patient and hope all things and believe all things and bear all things the way 1 Corinthians calls us to, can't we? And yet you see in the church all the time this goal to try to find heresy in different places without love. We should be unbelievably zealous for the truth of God's word. We should be unbelievably zealous if we see false teachers and false prophets sharing things and communicating things that are not right in accordance with the word of God, but we should also be loving and gentle and patient and kind because those brothers and sisters, hopefully they're part of our family. And hopefully, God is doing something good there. And hopefully, the enemy isn't deceiving. And if he is deceiving, then instead of anger, we should have compassion for those people, praying that God's doing would would open their eyes to it. I don't know what's going on in Asbury. I have no idea. The point is, we can be so tempted to guard truth that we aren't loving anymore. We don't want to be that. And you see it all over Facebook. And you see it all over Instagram. We need to be a church that's both. We don't want to be the pendulum swinging church, right? We want to be the church that does both. Listen, if the enemy can get us so wrapped up in something like knowledge and teaching and the protection of doctrine that we don't care for the hurting person, or even worse, we cause hurt to people, 
Or even worse, we don't reach out to the marginalized and those who don't have the gospel. He is going to win the day. And we are no longer helping the kingdom. We are hurting the kingdom. That was what was happening in Ephesus. It was good that they cared about the truth. But they lost their love. In the end, without love, our sound teaching is a resounding gong. Without love, our call to faithfulness to the truth is a resounding gong. If we have fallen into this trap, we need to repent. Our love of God and others should be the foundation, the root, and the fuel for our love of truth. Let me say that again. Our love of God and others should be the foundation, the root, and the fuel for our love of his truth. We should never sacrifice one for the other. Now, Pergamum, likewise, has given way to something very particular. We call it the stumbling block of compromise. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Balaam and Balak. It can be found in Numbers chapter 25 and, 20 and 31. But let me just say, in short, Balak was a king in Canaan as the people of Israel were coming into the promised land. And Balaam was a prophet um, it's unclear exactly what his role was and how his connection was to the one true God. But nonetheless, um, Balak comes to Balaam and says, hey, I want you to curse these people. And Balaam says, I, I can't. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing this story mightily, but nonetheless, he says, I can't. God won't let me. He's saying, you're not allowed to curse these people. And so Balaam helps Balak get to a place where he basically tricks the people to turn their eyes away from Yahweh away from God into sin and impurity. And he basically says, well, hey, listen, they already want to be like the people that they're around, so get them to marry these Moabite women, your women, and so that those people, those gals, can bring those guys and and basically make them compromise. That's what happened in that story. Likewise, it seems that the enemy in Pergamum found that threatening the people in Pergamum with death wasn't going to work. And so he shifts and he begins to bring in another type of teaching, something that would turn their faces from God. And I think that the easiest way to do this is to tap into our desire to be like them. We all feel that, don't we? Does anybody here like to be on the outside? Does anybody like to be the one that's not included? Does anybody here love to be the one that's different from everybody else? I don't think that we do. We love to be accepted. We love to be part of the conversation. For the Israelites, they wanted the same thing. They wanted peace and acceptance with the people that they were around, the people that they were among. For us, maybe it's the subtle desire. We don't want to stick out so much. We not only don't want to be strange and peculiar people, but we want to partake in a lot of the things that are around us. This is the subtle lie that you can be a Christian and not be that different. You can be a Christian and not be that different. 
You don't, you don't have to be excluded from the business meetings at the bar. You don't have to be excluded from going and hanging out with your friends at the club. Like You don't have to be excluded from the entertainment that looks so fun or all the pleasures of this world that look so enjoyable. Like you don't have to be excluded from those things. You don't have to be excluded from the things that feel so good to our, our flesh. Like you can, you can be a Christian and. You can be a Christian and do that. You can be a Christian and whatever it is. That's the lie. See, if the enemy can't keep us silent with death, then he can keep us silent by making us look just like those that are around us. If the enemy cannot keep us silent with our death, he can keep us silent by making us look just like those around us. To look like the world renders our testimony useless because your life and word have to match. To look like this world renders your testimony, my testimony, the testimony of this church, useless. Let me give you an analogy. If I were to sit here and tell you up on stage, the best car company in the entire world is Chevy. Man, you need to buy a Chevy. They're the most reliable car. They're the most um, inexpensive car. They're the easiest to work on. They're the best car in the world. They, they look the best, the most luxurious. Like You should buy a Chevy. Everyone here should buy a Chevy. You should do everything you can to buy a Chevy. And if I told you that, but then told you at the same time that I've only owned three cars and two of those have been Hondas and one a Mazda, what does my testimony about Chevy mean? If I'm not driving the Honda... What is it? How much can I actually convince you to drive the Chevy if I'm not even driving one? See, my testimony about how amazing Chevy is becomes useless because I'm driving a Honda. Your testimony about Jesus and how good he is and how gracious he is, how much you trust him, how much you believe in him becomes completely useless if you look just like the world. It becomes useless if you look just like the world. Because what are people looking at? What you say or how you live. What you say or how you live. We are to be sold out for him and for him alone. With Jesus, there is no both and, meaning that you cannot have both Jesus and this world. He demands either him or the world. He has something to say about every single part of your life and my life. and He does not want us to compromise. Now, You say, well, what do I mean by the world? I want to be clear. I'm not saying that you can't have a home and Jesus. I'm not saying that you can't enjoy good stories and Jesus or good music and Jesus. We went to some friend's house uh, last week and they gave us coffee and there was a little, um, one of those little milk frothers that made the coffee so good. I was like, ooh, I'd love to have one of those. And my wife got me one for Valentine's Day. Listen, I can have that and Jesus. It's okay. Like, that's fine. That's not what we're talking about here. So when I say you can't have the world and Jesus at the same time, I'm not talking about that Jesus says that you have to live like a hermit in some shack somewhere and not enjoy any of the things that he's given to us. That's not at all the case. He's given us stories. He's given us music. He's given us food. He's given us sex. He's given us the ability to build building or build businesses and to learn skills. Like, can we watch movies? Absolutely we can watch movies. But, but, if that movie celebrates or normalizes sex before marriage or homosexuality, do you think that that would please your God? 
See, the issue isn't we can't enjoy these things. The issue is we have to let the Lord redeem these things. And as a result of that, it is going to require that you and I abstain from some things. Some passions, some parts of our flesh, because everything in us wants to take God's good gifts and twist them and bring in pride and sin and selfishness and lust and covetousness and all kinds of other things. You cannot live in that and have Jesus at the same time. And there are so many people that have slowly compromised, saying, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal if I just give sway to these things. Like, I can have Jesus in that too. Like, he wants me to be happy. No, he wants to redeem those things. And he wants you and me to look different than the world. This is a hard statement. And I know it's a hard statement, but I think it's a really important one to be made. If you are a Christian and you can point to nothing in your life that you are abstaining from for the sake of Jesus, that you are abstaining from for the sake of wanting to be set apart as his people, and you you can't point to anything in your life that sets you apart from the people around you other than the fact that you go to church, that is a massive red flag. It is a massive red flag in your life. He does not want us compromising. He does not want us compromising with the world because of fear of missing out or wanting to not be excluded or wanting to engage in the pleasures of the world. He wants us to be dedicated to him. And if we refuse to have Jesus like open our eyes to those things, then look what is at stake for us. Revelation 2.16, he says, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Like, that's terrifying. That should be a terrifying statement. This is judgment by the word of his mouth. He reads us and he judges us. And and when that sword comes, it is either going to cut you to the heart and lead you to repentance, or it is simply going to come to cut and to bring judgment. And that's hard. But that's what Jesus is saying. Like, this is important. Like, this is a massive issue. The sword of his mouth is either going to be terrifying to those who refuse to repent or it is going to be sweet to those who have it cut us, open our eyes to see areas we've been compromised and repent. Remember that prayer we prayed at the beginning? Lord, look at me. Look into me. Look through me. Cut me with the sword. Divide with your word. Reveal that which I don't see in my own heart that I might repent. Listen, I doubt that anybody in this room, and I think about now both Ephesus and Pergamon, I doubt there's anybody in this room that says, you know what, I, I love God's word, but I don't care about loving people. I, I doubt there's anybody in this room that came in very specifically thinking, yeah, absolutely, I'm, I'm worried about being unlike uh, or being kind of a, a excluded from the world, and I, and I don't want to engage in all of those things that the world offers, and, and, and you you know you're compromising and you're okay with compromising. I bet most of us aren't trying to walk in that. In fact, I bet most of us are probably going, you know what, I'm doing okay. Like I go to church and I know there's some sin in my life and I struggle with that sin. But the reality of it is that even if that's the case for you, even if that's the case for me, God wants us all. 
He doesn't want any part of our lives untouched, any part of our lives unopened to him, any part of our life that is left unsurrendered to him. And I hope that you've truly looked and that you've truly dealt with compromise that you were aware of, but that shouldn't stop there. We should be daily going to his word, asking, Lord, see if there's any wicked way in me. Help me to be deeper and more and more and more connected to you, more and more faithful, more and more set apart, more and more free from the sin that so easily entangles and enslaves me. Never forget that we will rarely spot compromise on our own. We will rarely spot compromise on our own. He is the one who defines compromise. And he is the one that by his spirit can reveal it to us. He is the one that by his spirit can open our eyes to see it. If you come to this place and you say, well, hey, I understand the Bible says this, but I just don't see anything wrong with it. I don't care. None of us should. It doesn't matter whether you think being with your boyfriend or girlfriend and intimacy before marriage is wrong or not. He says it is. He says it's destructive. He says it's wrong. I don't care whether you see anything wrong with getting drunk or not. It doesn't matter. He says it's wrong. He says it's destructive. I don't care whether you think speaking to your spouse is in an in a ungodly and way that breaks them down. I don't care whether you think that's wrong or not. He thinks it's wrong. I don't care whether you think it's wrong or not for you to disobey your parents or to rebel against your parents. That doesn't matter. He says it's wrong. You see where I'm going with this? We don't define what's wrong and what's not wrong. He does. We don't define when we're compromising or not compromising. He does. You're not going to see that on your own. You've got to get close to him and let him reveal it to us. The question is, do you want to? Do we want to? And how will we respond when he does? Remember that we can all, every time that happens to us, we will respond. We said that last week. We're always going to respond. When we hear these things, we might respond with justification or frustration. You might respond with saying, you know what, I don't have anything to do with this stuff. You might respond with thinking, man, I'm doing a pretty good job, but I know I need to grow in this, and Lord, be merciful to me and help me to continue to see areas in my life where I'm not loving or I'm not engaged in, or I am engaged in compromise. Some of us need to respond just flat out through repentance. And the beauty of it is that those who would repent and do the works of love that they did at first, or those that would repent and seek to move away from compromise, they are the ones who will conquer. They are the ones who will conquer. This is the call for us. Are we being faithful? In your life, I'm going to guess every one of you, there's some things to commend. I know your works. I know your love. I know what you're doing. I know that you're reading the word of God. The question is, is there also a, but I have this against you. And if there is, we need to open our eyes to that. And it's some of those things that we've lost our love for him and for those around us. Maybe for the sake of something good like the word. And for some of us, we've simply compromised 
we started to look like the people around us a little bit too much. Like we're willing to die for him, but we're not really willing to die to our flesh in the day-to-day. And so if that's you, it's an opportunity for you to repent, to come, to come to Christ and to lean upon his grace and his mercy. We're going to close. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. I'll just give you a couple seconds. I want to just lead us through a time of just response. Um, and then Ryan's going to lead us in a song and we're going to close our time together. But I just want you to hear these questions. And just between you and the Lord, like, if you recognize that these are some areas you've strayed, then just lay those down before him. And maybe you don't. Maybe it's an opportunity for you to say, Lord, is this true of me? Have you abandoned your love of God and others? Have you abandoned your love of God and others? Does the love of God or others manifest itself in deeds in your life? You can say you love God and you can say you love your your spouse. You can say you love your kids. You can say you love those that are your enemies. You can say you love your coworkers. The question is, does it match with your deeds? Jesus says, repent and do the works you did at first. Love has to be tied to deeds. Is your love of God and of others the foundation for why you do good things? Is the love of God and others the reason you go to church? Is the love of God and others the reason that you're generous? Is the love of God and others the reason you care so much about his truth? Is the love of God and others the reason you serve? Is the love of God and others the reason that you seek to avoid sin? How will you respond? Have you allowed a stumbling block of compromise in your life? Have you allowed a stumbling block of compromise in your life? Think about what you watch. Treat the, how you treat the people around you. Think about what you listen to. Think about how you spend your free time. Think about how you engage in business. Think about the comforts in your life, the amenities in your life, the entertainments of this world. Have you allowed a stumbling block of compromise in your life? Have you listened to the lie that you can have Jesus and the world too? Where have you been excluded from the world? 
for much of this world and for the people in the first century, for them to become Christians meant that they lost a lot. And it was very clear that they were being excluded. And Jesus says very clear that if you are my disciples, you will be hated by this world. Are you experiencing that? I'm not saying they're trying to string you up and kill you. But are you peculiar to them? Are you strange to them? If not, that should be a red flag. So how will you respond? Fathers, we close this time. We want to just ask you to open our eyes. Father, open our ears. We don't want to be the church that thinks that everything is perfect and great and wonderful and that we're, we're doing fantastic while there are some things that you have against us. Fathers, there's anything that you have against us, if there's anything in any way in which we're not walking faithfully, like help us to see it and help us to respond well. Father, we don't need to go to Kentucky to experience repentance. We can do that right now. We don't need to experience something in another state to experience the revival of your spirit leading us to repentance and empowering us to walk in faithfulness. You can do that right now. And so we pray that you would do that for us as a church, as people, as families, as individuals, that we'd be faithful and we'd endure in a day that is getting darker and darker and darker. That we'd be able to raise up our kids in truth and faithfulness in all aspects. Not only to guard truth, but to love those around us. To be mindful and, and care so much about the truth that you've given to us, but yet at the same time, be compassionate to those who don't have it. But to be people who don't compromise with this world, but endure that we might conquer. Father, I pray these things in your name. Amen.